Reading Corner today, my guest is Louise Stowell, who has an established and very successful career in publishing and in writing. She's written many books on subjects as diverse as coding, astronomy, ancient Egypt and creative writing. More recently, she's turned to fiction and she's the author of the popular Dragon in the Library series and Otherland. And now we have Loki, A Bad God's Guide to Being Good, published by Walker Books. I'm so excited to be talking to you, um, Louis, because I am a fan of Norse mythology, and in particular Loki, it has to be said. Excellent. <laughs> now, is this a long-term fascination for you as well? Yes, definitely. So I can trace it back to when I was about three, and um, it was the 80s, and I, on television, I it happened to be on like a production of Wagner on television of The Ring Cycle, um, which is like the German version of the Norse myths. And I was just absolutely fascinated by it because it had people pretending to be giants. And it was just people on each other's shoulders, I think. But it just kind of, that those giants really captivated me. And then sort of later, I read various kind of Viking stories. Um, I don't know if you remember that Terry Jones did a, a Viking legend of his own. Eric the Red, I think he called it. Or was it just Eric, Eric the Viking? It was, it was just Eric the Viking, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was beautifully illustrated. It might be Michael Foreman illustrations. Yeah. So that idea of those kind of Norse voyages was fascinating as well. But then I did Old English at university, and that sort of led me on to Norse stuff. My one kind of academic regret was that I didn't actually go and learn Old Norse as well. <laughs> but yes, those. I think finding those those legends in their kind of original versions didn't actually come for me till a bit later, though, when I um, I used to work at Osborne Publishing and we wrote a lot of kind of retellings of fairy tales and stuff there. And as part of that, I did a, a book of Norse myths with a colleague. So that sort of led me back to reading the kind of Snorri Sturluson and the other, I sort of hesitate to say original versions because they were recorded much later than the actual times of the that the legends kind of came about, written down by Christian's whatever, a thousand years odd later. But anyway, it's about going to read those texts. And I think being reminded how weird they are was was quite wonderful. Like the creation myth being that Odin murders a giant and uses his body to make the earth. <laughs> yeah. Just really weird. And I and I and that drawing on that was, was really lovely. And I think Loki's always interested me because I guess he's the outsider. He's the troublemaker. He, but he's also the instigator. So if you kind of trace a lot of those stories, they all start with Loki. Normally him doing something wrong <laughs> and then him having to fix his mistake. So the Norse myth that became the ring cycle was Otter's Ransom. And it basically all starts because Loki kills an otter. Mm-hmm. And that leads to kind of gener- you know, a curse and generations of misery <laughs> that's all basically Loki's fault. I don't know. He's like the grit in the oyster of the story. He's always getting things going. But also, I think reading around the Norse myths, I did grow to love Odin and also to trust him less. And I think that's been quite interesting where... In my own writing, I've kind of, in a way, used Odin as the authority figure, but always slightly kind of brought into question, I think, because because he is still, if not human, just a person with his own kind of biases and shifty agenda sometimes. In a way, that's something that we all have to discover about our own parents. We start off (laughs) believing they can do no wrong, but actually, as you grow up, you learn to realize they have frailties and vulnerabilities and act as humans but you don't necessarily realize that as a child yeah yeah I think maybe when you're a child it's quite comforting the idea that there's these perfect authority figures that actually 
as you get older, there aren't, and you've just got to suck that up <laughs> and do exactly. the best you can. Let's talk a little bit about the relationships of some of the characters in your Loki. But actually, I suppose before we get there, I ought to ask you to set it up, what, what this book is actually about and a little bit about how it's written. So it's done as a diary. The idea is that Loki has been sent down to Earth as a punishment for things you'll discover later. And as part of his punishment, he has to write in a diary. Now, it's not an ordinary diary. It's a magical one, which... Loki is kind of Lord of Lies, trickster god. So whenever he tries to lie in the diary, um, a voice comes in correcting him. Now, this is the voice of Odin, or rather a kind of AI version that's programmed into the diary. So whenever he sort of says something kind of wild and extravagant and untrue, Odin will correct him. So Loki's the main character, but Odin is there as sort of a sidekick, even though he's not the real Odin. And so you've got that kind of structure of the unreliable narrator, but we know it quite obviously, like we're having it pointed out to us that, that he is unreliable. There's no, you know, in a way you don't have to discover that. You just like, you know, from the start that he is up to no good. But also I think in a way it makes him more reliable because you know that what he says and doesn't get corrected on is true or at least is partly true. And that was really interesting to me because I kept thinking Odin's voice might come in here. Oh, it's not. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but he's not Loki as we know him, is he? I guess it depends on what version you know him, but he's um in this version he's a child, which um in terms of the Norse gods, there's no kind of legends of them as children. They they all sort of appear fully formed as far as I know. And I'm and I've kind of gone with that, that they they don't have a childhood, they just become. So, you know, Odin was born at the dawn of time, or nearly at the dawn of time, and the other gods came a bit later. So I thought this was quite it'd be quite fun to explore Loki as a child. For the first time. Um, but also I think the subtext being that gods are so immature that actually they're basically children anyway. And actually children are a lot more mature than gods because, you know, gods get, you know, they don't really have any limits. They're kind of quite spoiled and quite self-involved. And the Norse gods aren't very interventionist. They're not there to look after humanity. They're there to just do their own thing. Say Odin's main interest in humanity is that when they die, they can come and join his army. He's not like invested in them having happy lives or anything. So Loki becomes a schoolboy. And I think when I was thinking of that originally, I had a lot of kind of, I guess, archetypal schoolboys in my head. So like Dennis the Menace, which is where Loki gets his hair from. And uh, Molesworth, if you remember that one. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, Adrian Mole. The, the book's actually dedicated to Adrian Mole because he's my kind of ultimate narrator that doesn't know himself very well. So it's, it's not just unreliable narrator. It's narrator totally lacking in self-knowledge. And I think that's something I've always found very funny when people say things about themselves that give way more away than they mean it to. And Loki's like that. He's kind of very unable to read his own emotions. He's quite perceptive about other people quite a lot of the time, especially mm. when it comes to their weaknesses. But when it comes to himself, he's got zero understanding um, and either has to have it pointed out to him by Odin or by other people or you know, occasionally he'll have revelations of his own. At you know, various points in the book, his his conscience voice does come into play as well as Odin's voice, but it's very faint. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of, for me, the humour is that Loki uh, thinks he's amazing on one level, but actually on another, he really doesn't. And it's sort of, that seeps through every now and then. You get a bit of emotional honesty on very rare occasions, but mostly he's just kind of full of bravado and going on about how great he is. So he's sent with some companions. Hmm. So he is sent down to Earth with 
Thor, who's also in the form of a mortal boy, um, but a much kind of larger, more handsome, more popular mortal boy, because Odin's a bit mean like that. And he also has two fake parents. So, so Thor is there as his fake brother. In, in the Norse myths, he's actually, well, he's not anyone's actual brother. Specifically, he is Odin's blood brother, so his kind of sworn companion. Um, but in this, he is, he is Thor's fake brother. And then he also has Hyrakin, who is a, a giant, not a god, um, and Heimdall, who is a god. Um, so they're his fake mum and dad. Hyrakin was one of those kind of quite incidental characters in Norse mythology, but I, I really enjoyed her because she has a great entrance. <laughs> so she um, she rides on a wolf with snakes for reins. So in the world that she's kind of transported into our world, um, she then keeps pet snakes and the wolf turns into a dog. And basically she's there at, at a funeral in Norse mythology where all the gods are too weakened by grief. So she's the one that has to push the funeral boat into the, into the water. So I suppose that idea of a very strong, but possibly slightly lonely figure who's not really connected to the gods, but helps them out when they need, they need a hand. That quite appealed to me. And then Heimdall is the guardian god. So he, he guards the rainbow bridge, which is the route from Asgard to Midgard. So that made sense for me that he would be the one guarding Loki on Earth. Also in, in the, you know, spoilers for Ragnarok, but in, <laughs> in the end of the world, he's the one that kills Loki. So I thought that was quite a fun dynamic to play with, but he was the kind of authority figure, dad figure, but also as the book develops, this isn't really a spoiler, but I would say that he does actually really try hard to be a dad. Like he does his very best and gets into mm-hmm. parenting books. So yeah, so he's got this fake family, and I, for me, I'm always, I've always been very interested in the idea of found family and the kind of people that you kind of forge bonds with that aren't bonds of blood. So I, I sort of wanted to give Loki a family and to, I guess, give him that sense of belonging, even though he deeply resents it and thinks it's humiliating. Sort of giving little hints that maybe it's not so bad after all, and that even someone who feels like a complete outsider can find a family. Mm. you're in danger of transforming him into <laughs> a loving family <laughs> guy <laughs> Don't worry. so my editor actually talked to me about this because um I've been writing book two and uh by the end of it um non my editor said like you've made him too good by the end you need you need to slow your roll because otherwise what's going to happen in book three <laughs> so I have to go back and make him worse again <laughs> All moral progress is, you know, however many steps forward, however many steps back. So I feel mm-hmm. like in that way, he's just like, just like us. Mm, indeed. I wonder if we could hear a little bit. Sure. So it's heavily illustrated. So what I'll be doing is sort of skipping over the pictures. But OK, so this is a little snippet from the very first entry in his diary. Day one, Wednesday. Loki Virtue Score, or LVS, minus 3000. My name is Loki and I am a god. Or I was until last Tuesday. Now Odin has banished me to Earth in the form of an 11-year-old boy. This situation is bad for many different reasons. First, there is the overall weakness of this mortal body. I'm not the strongest of the gods, but right now my legs look like sticks and I have the upper body strength of a small squirrel. Gods spring into being fully formed, so I have not until now ever been a child. Apparently, this is what Odin thinks I look like as one. That is... My hair is only slightly awesome, my neck is scrawny, my arms are like noodles, my legs are like sticks, and I'm also quite short. Second, there are my fake parents. The guard god Heimdall, who hates me, and a terrifying giant called Hyrakin, feelings unknown. They're here to pretend to be my father and mother while we're on Earth. 
I have to live with them and do what they say. I am appalled at this indignity. I'm thousands of years old. I should not have a bedtime. I should not have to do chores. I should absolutely under no circumstances be expected to fold my own undergarments. Third, I must put up with 11-year-old Thor, who seems to take great amusement from sitting on my head and farting, shouting, I am Thor, God of bum thunder. Perhaps I should take comfort in the fact that he is here and must suffer with me, but it's hard to be comforted at the same time you're being farted on. While I'm on earth, I must write in this stupid book every single day for a month to prove that I'm becoming a better person and worthy of Asgard, whatever that means. Indeed. So I wonder, I mean, you obviously know a lot about Norse mythology, but when you were writing in Loki's voice, did you discover anything about him for yourself that actually writing in the first person allowed you to discover? A really interesting question, because I've never actually written in the first person before. I mean, not not for anything that's been published. Um, I've normally gone for third, close third. So yes, it was a really different journey. And I think... I was quite lucky in that Loki's voice just kind of came to me. And I think, I wouldn't say he's he's part of me necessarily, but I think there's the kind of like sarcastic commentary that I have in my head that was sort of channeled into that and the idea of kind of observing the world. But I don't really know what I discovered because it came all at once. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm much better at explaining how I write when something's been a real slog. <laughs> so with some of my books, so with Otherland, I, I did so many drafts and not that I did not many drafts of Loki, but I feel like, you know, there was definitely like the voice changed, I changed perspectives. Whereas Loki, it was always from Loki's perspective, it was always going to be a diary. But I suppose what it forced me to explore in ways that I might not have done otherwise was basically just much more about how he feels about things. Um, and I think a lot of the stories in the Norse the Norse myths are about how Loki impacts on other people, whereas this is how does Loki impact on Loki? You know, there's kind of the old um, joke of like, oh, look, it's the consequences of my own actions, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's sort of what Loki's experiencing, that he's having mm-hmm. to live through those consequences and form relationships. Because, I mean, Norse mythology doesn't tend to focus in that much on the feelings of relationships other than, you know, anger and love and the big kind of grand ones, not the sort of day to day stuff. So I guess it's sort of forcing me to explore how he might feel about Thor and how, you know, what it's like to have this kind of handsome Superman as your, well, in this case, fake brother, but, you know, hanging around your life and making you look bad. And again, how he might feel about the other gods and how he fits in, because he's not, well, the kind of, the idea of being a god in Norse mythology Mm. is quite kind of amorphous because they're all descended from giants anyway. So, you know, it's not like they're a separate species, but... But Loki is kind of, I guess, marked out by having a giant parent because that giant parent is his father. So normally in Asgardian society, um, it's all right for gods to marry down, as in marry a giant. Male gods, I mean, but for female gods, they should marry up or at least equal. So I I can't think of an exa- another example where there's a, a male giant and a female god and Loki sort of... His, his surname in, in the in the myths is Loki Lofison, mm. and that's actually the name of his mother, which is is really unusual. So it's sort of, I mean, that's kind of all coded into sort of Viking society, where basically being named after your mother is a bit weird. <laughs> but she was like, she was the god, so it had to be that way. But it's also true there aren't many Norse goddesses, say, compared to the other mythologies. There are far more gods than there are goddesses. It's partly about how it's been written down. And I think... 
those goddesses may well have been much more important earlier on, but we just don't, don't, don't have that written, written record from the Vikings themselves, apart from the odd kind of rune, rune stone. Um, but even a lot of the rune stones were, were later anyway. But what I really enjoyed doing was kind of filling in the gaps. And I guess I, part of what I had to think through is my entire theology of this universe and how it works. A lot of which I won't actually put into the books. It's just, I need to know. So I think my take on it is very much that the gods have their own identities and lives and mortals have their own interpretation of that. And the mortal interpretation is often wrong. I can't give too much away, but the stuff that happens in book two about stuff that's been missed out of the myths and that has to do with goddesses. One of the things that Loki does is that he makes, in your book, he makes observations and commentaries on our world that allows us to see ourselves. I mean, there's there's a commentary on private schools. There's a commentary on capitalism in there. And I love the comments that there are lots of crime scenes here and they're full of stolen goods and it's called a museum. <laughs> and there's something that looks very much like the British Museum. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you, I mean, it, maybe I've said it there, but I'm interested from your perspective. It's very playful and it kind of gets us to question ourselves a little bit. Mm. I mean, I think it's sort of, I quite like to think of it as the two-way street that like Loki is learning to be better, but maybe there's stuff we can learn from Loki too. And I think that kind of outsider perspective can be very valuable. I mean, not that there aren't plenty of humans making these comments. There are. However, um, I guess it's rarer for children to have access to that because they tend to be very adult discussions that are quite serious and but actually maybe you can kind of introduce them a little bit earlier in life through humour, right? I mean, I know that a lot of my political education was through satire. So, you know, I watched Spitting Image and um, Have I Got News For You and listen to Weekending and stuff. And I think, you know, you can actually kind of glean quite a lot of useful information about the world through humour. Obviously, you have to then go and kind of check it out from someone more reliable than Loki, but it, it gives you a starting point. And also, it's just really fun making fun of things. You know? Yes, of course it is. <laughs> And I think kind of, you know, Loki's natural go-to mode is mockery. There's actually an entire Norse myth that's just him making fun of people. But uh, yeah, so I think that was just, it was just an opportunity to kind of make some jokes, really. <laughs> and it's all framed as, um, well, actually, it's interesting. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm giving Loki credit for this, but actually a lot of the observations are actually from Odin because they're, they're framed as like Odin gives him this guide to 21st century life. Um, so Loki did the museum, but Odin actually did the one about private schools because Loki hasn't been on Earth for a thousand years or so. So Odin needed to kind of bring him up to speed. So every now and then when an unfamiliar concept arrives, um, a definition pops into the diary and one of those was one of private schools so I, I think Odin is also there to have a bit of a sly poke at us because again he's not he's not a god that like cares about us he just he has his own his own interests um but he's he's also very sharp <laughs> I want to pick up a point that is made towards the end of the book really but I'm not giving any spoilers away <laughs> uh, there's a comment that says uh, you don't need to have good running through your veins to be good you just need to do good this to me seems such an important message in a book for children who can sometimes in situations be like although I do hope we're getting better at, at not doing this but they can be labeled as good or bad or they get labeled as mm. being a thing um, and this kind of pushes against that and I think I feel like Loki's quite a 
good person to help you with that because he's so anti-labels completely. You know, he doesn't want anyone else to tell him who he is or what he is. However, he does have to be told that thing. And I think he's perhaps felt a bit aggrieved that all the other gods just have goodness in them, you know, and somehow Thor's just fundamentally good and actually ends up falling back on quite an essentialist definition of good rather than anything focused on actions and it's sort of the irony of he's someone that thinks he makes his own destiny, but at the same time thinks his destiny is fixed because of who he is and being this kind of outsider. And I think, yeah, like, I guess there's an element of, you know, as a children's writer, wanting to reassure and wanting to tell people it's all going to be okay and that you're not just stuck with what you're given. You know, there's certain kids who are like, oh, you're such a good boy. And people will say that to them and then they don't say it to the other kid. And the other kid might start feeling bad about himself, but actually, you know, someone else's opinion doesn't actually make you good either, you know. And I think I've, I've always been very interested in that kind of, not just bad characters becoming good, but the idea of like them discovering what good means. And sometimes you don't necessarily start off having a definition of good that really makes sense. And that's part of the problem. It's not just that you're doing bad things because you know they're bad. You actually think they're good. And that, you know, sort of villains often think they're doing the right thing, you know. So yeah. Loki to kind of gradually discover what that might mean. Really interesting, really interesting. Now, we know that you are working on a second book or that you have been uh, writing a second book. You would think that if Loki's done enough good on Earth this time, surely that's it for him. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's not that great yet. He's he's gone from being like an utter menace to like slightly less of a menace. (laughs) and he's sort of like he's definitely learned to have some like he's learned to form relationships. But the the second book sort of explores a bit more. Does he really understand what relationships are? Because actually, maybe he's got the wrong end of the stick about what a friend is. And yeah. that he has to kind of learn that it's a bit more complicated than he thinks it is. That's interesting. So in a way, a little bit like Dennis the Menace, who never, ever truly redeems himself. <laughs> Every now and then you get... You know, sometimes actually you applaud him for the wrong that he does because he seems to be standing up against somebody who's even more tyrannical (laughs) in authority. Sometimes he seems to get glimpses of being, you know, a little bit better, but it never lasts for very long. Yeah. I mean, I think think Loki's got a bit more hope of change than that, partly because of the format, because in a comic, a weekly comic that you've got to keep going for 50 to whatever how many years – you can't have the character change that much because you haven't got a character anymore and it's not a novel, you know? So I think with, with a series of novels, which I don't know how many there will be, I do still have scope for him to genuinely change. Um, mm. But I think it's more that, you know, the kind of the better he gets, the bigger the obstacle to him being good has to be. So, you know, you kind of, he gets challenges commensurate with his level and, you know, so he still has the same scope to be bad. It's just on a potentially bigger scale. Wow. You know, Louis, I knew it was going to be a delight talking to you today. (laughs) I feel so educated by everything that you've said. (laughs) And I can't wait to read the next book. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. Thank you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.